0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
1: Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm Harry Scheiber. I'm chair of the, of the Jefferson Lectures Committee. I want to thank you for coming. And um, uh, it, it's my privilege to uh, introduce our speaker, but first I want to just... Uh, Give a special welcome and a special thank you to uh, new graduate dean, Professor Fiona Doyle, who has raised her hand there. Raise your hand. (laughs) I gave a seminar in the summer a couple of years ago, and several federal district judges and a circuit judge were in the group that took the seminar, and I had the pleasure of cross examining federal judges. So now I've had the pleasure of making a dean raise their hand. <clears throat> the, um, the lecture uh, today is one of a distinguished series, which is uh, sponsored through a bequest from the bon- Bonesteel family, who uh, hoped that the lectures would encourage members of our community to study values inherent in American democracy, and particularly the values uh, adhered to by Thomas Jefferson, whom they admired. And uh, they were great supporters of history, and this endowment has brought a, as you'll see in the programs, those of you um, who are in the room, because we're also addressing a television audience, um, the um, lecture series is one of the jewels in the crown for UC Berkeley, and we're very uh, proud uh, of that uh, distinguished list, and proud today to add yet another name to it and to be privileged to hear him speak. Um, uh, Daniel Rodriguez began his academic career after uh, graduating from Long Beach State and going to Harvard Law School and uh, having a very uh, prestigious clerkship, Uh, began his academic career, we're all proud to say, right here uh, in this building uh, as an assistant or a was then called an acting professor, and he spent 10 years with us, which was a treasure for everyone here, both for his teaching and his um, stint as an administrator and uh, for the friendships that he made, and I'm happy to include myself in that number. Um, I'm not going to give an extended introduction about his work because the program contains a very detailed accounting of it. Uh, but the subject of today's lecture uh, is one in which he's been a really a modern pioneer. By modern, I mean since starting with the 1880s, 1980s. Um, the, the subject of localism, home rule, uh, state sovereignty, local sovereignty, home rule, has always been a vexing one in American constitutional and political history. And it's, um, an, it's an interesting development. I, uh, when I came to Bolt in 1980, I gave us a, a seminar on the history and theory of federalism and uh, it was a, a, a colleague at Georgetown was interested in that and said well we all have state and local government and we have Con Law 3 but a research seminar on federalism, that's pretty rare <laughs> and it turned out that it was very rare. Dan was in on the ground floor basically in that regard because um, federalism had a had a bad name in a way um, in, in the um, liberal community of scholars. And it was silly, but that's the way it was. People associated it with states' rights, which they associated with segregation and Jim Crow and the policies of the South with regard to race. But it turned out that um, Mr. Ronald Reagan became president and made federalism a really big issue. <laughs> so in about a space of about 12 years, It burgeoned uh, as a field of teaching in the law schools and as a subject in um, scholarship, in constitutional law, and indeed in history, a field in which I worked. Um, Here at Berkeley, the subject of state and local government, or home rule, and the constitutional framework for it was developed in a pioneering way by three scholars whose work went back to the 1930s. Um, and and 40s at least, 1940s. One was Victor Jones, professor in the Department of Political Science. Another was Eugene Lee, who was in that department and was also the head for many years, the director of the Institute for Governmental Studies, which is now under distinguished directorship of Jack Citrin, who carries on that tradition both administratively and as a scholar. And then here in Bolt, um, Professor Sho Sato uh, taught that field Uh, And he was really one of the country's leading uh, scholars in the field of state and local government and, by extension, federalism. So it's especially nice that Dan, who has carried on that tradition, albeit at three other universities, we forgive him for that because we're so glad to have him back today. Um, He has uh, carried on that tradition as a scholar, maintained the vitality of the field through his own work, as much as anyone whom you could name in this uh, growing field. So it's with great eagerness and interest, deep interest, that uh, we look forward to your lecture, Dan, on federalism, localism, and the shape of constitutional conflict. Dan Rodriguez.
0: It. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. Thank you, Harry. I'm just... Absolutely delighted to uh, to to be here to be back here. I can't imagine, scarcely imagine, a more uh, uh, a greater honor and uh, a, a greater venue to uh, to give a lecture. And uh, in that vein, let me certainly thank the Jefferson Lectures Committee and Alan Gobbler and all those responsible for uh, for inviting me out. It's been again a, a great few days and, and wonderful honor. And certainly at the top of the list of thanks is, is Harry Scheiber. If I could divide it into a temporal category, I certainly thank him in the present for, for, uh, for really being uh, uh, the engine driving uh, my invitation. And I'm, I'm just extremely grateful. As I said to, to Harry and Jane last night at dinner, uh, I want to warn him that I've had so much fun and enjoyment in, uh, in preparing and working on this uh, lecture, that if I return to Northwestern and decide to step down from the deanship because this is too much fun to give up you 're the one responsible so, so uh, but I certainly also want to acknowledge the past, and he did a better job than, than i 'm going to do, of course in uh, in really bringing it back to the beginning. I can actually trace my interest scholarly interest in this subject was really having the opportunity and the honor way back when as a, as a, as a callow youth. To be invited to participate in the Federalism uh, research seminar and the, and the great the giants that he that he mentioned were very influential on me. He left out of course, the key part, which is Harry Scheiber's own seminal role in in not only jump starting but it really at it reframing a lot of the interest historical interest and doctrinal interest, theoretical interest in in federalism and to the extent i 've made any modest contributions over the years, I owe an enormous debt of thanks to to Harry for uh, uh, for inviting me to participate in that, uh, in, that, uh, in that regard. So indeed, what I would like to explore this afternoon is uh, the relationship between two central constitutional principles, federalism and localism. And in particular, I'd like to discuss how the contours of these two principles are best understood by looking at the purpose of behavior of state and local governments. That is, not only how they behave, but why they act the way they do. To make sense of federalism and localism, respectively, and the connection between these two isms in the modern administrative state, it is helpful, and indeed I would argue even essential, to take a closer look at these complex institutions of governance. And with this look, we can enrich palpably our understanding of the law and theory of these immensely important constitutional concepts and ideas. So let me begin with federalism. Federalism is, needless to say, a cornerstone of our American Constitutional tradition. Indeed, the reconciliation of state and national authority in our constitutional framework is perhaps the central accomplishment of the American founding, the manifestation of the framers' efforts to split the atom of sovereignty, as Justice Kennedy put it. It is perhaps less obvious that the same can be said of localism, by which I mean the relationship between the state and local governments under our state constitutional tradition. By comparison to our 50 states, local governments occupy an unsteady space in our constitutional and political ecosystem, in that they are essentially dependent upon the state legislature to create and empower them. There is nonetheless something of value for Americans in the exercise of meaningful policy choice by local governments. Indeed, the namesake of this lecture, Thomas Jefferson, understood that well, observing that, quote, the little republics should be the main strength of the great one. So yes, indeed, federalism and localism are fundamental structural elements in the American constitutional tradition and therefore enduring topics in our study of American constitutionalism, whether as historians, political scientists, or in my case, a legal scholar. So with all that, is there anything truly new to say about federalism? Is there anything much to say new about localism? To borrow from Ecclesiastes, is there anything new under the sun? Well, it won't surprise anyone to hear me say that I believe the answer is yes, there is. And this is true at many levels, from the analysis of particular legal doctrines in this age of the new judicial federalism, to the empirical study of how national, state, and local governments work together or apart to pursue policy objectives. And it is true as well with what we might call big picture theories of federalism and localism. That is to say, theories which aspire to explain why we have the structure of federalism and localism that we do. And it is to this big picture theory that I attend in this lecture. Now, to quickly lower your expectations, I do not offer here a general theory of federalism or of localism. Nor do I offer a prescriptive roadmap for how difficult disputes between the states and the national government, or between the states and local governments, should be resolved. Rather, my aim here, pitched largely at a conceptual level, is to illuminate some of the missing assumptions and elements in the most recent big picture work by legal scholars on federalism and localism, and to offer some insights about the dynamics of intergovernmental relations, insights that help us in understanding federalism and localism in contemporary constitutional politics and constitutional law. So I begin with American federalism. The theoretical literature on federalism is enormous, to say the least and I ought not, perhaps even could not, do it justice in the time allocated by my kind Berkeley hosts. Begins in earnest, of course, with the influential analysis by James Madison and Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers and continues through 200 plus years of constitutional history. Rather than canvass this multifaceted debate, I want to shine a light on some fairly recent work, all by legal scholars, not simply because it is recent, But because taken together, it provides truly new, big-picture perspectives on this well-worn topic. So I want to start with what I'll call the new process federalism. It's the idea, in a nutshell, that American federalism is best understood not as a formula that supposes that, quote, within their respective spheres, the two centers of government are sovereign and hence equal, as Edward Corwin wrote, but views federalism as a description of the web of political arrangements among institutions in the federal and state process of governance. In this account, federalism maps onto the landscape of political practice. It is a constitutional principle that captures the realpolitik and also the ambitions of our complex political system. We might view federalism through this prism as the theory of intergovernmental relations, under the well-designed apparatus of the Constitution, the machine that would go of itself, as James Russell Lowell put it in 1888. This view reaches its apogee in the literature on cooperative federalism. The process of regulatory policymaking is configured in ways that necessitate intergovernmental collaboration. The federal governments, Stanford's Larry Kramer writes, needs the states as much as the reverse. Our system of federalism resembles the proverbial marble cake with policy implementation interweaved throughout the process and often in ways that make it hard to distinguish clearly where the regulatory activities of the federal government ends and the states begin. This mutual interdependence, so says the new process federalism, describes the normal warp and woof of politics. And indeed, there are particular regulatory areas in which this dynamic is especially conspicuous. In the area of environmental law, for example, states and the federal government collaborate in the policy-making process. For, as my former colleague John Dwyer observed, the quote, federal government cannot implement air pollution programs without the substantial resources, expertise, information, and political support of state and local officials, end quote. While this literature on cooperative federalism illuminates well the interdependence of regulatory institutions, what is missing is guidance about how best to resolve conflicts between levels of government when conflicts inevitably occur. Herbert Wexler and Jesse Choper famously suggested that such conflicts will be rare, and when they occur, they will be handled by the American political process. These are the so-called political safeguards of federalism. Although the viability of these safeguards has been questioned, the basic point that federalism is assured principally through the effective political process has proved remarkably resilient. In recent years, a number of legal scholars have noted the key role of political parties in channeling and managing conflict. And these same scholars have helped shift the debate away from a sharp focus on adjudication as the underpinning of federalism's design and toward the policies and processes of American policymaking. Two especially valuable scholarly contributions come to mind. Jessica Bullman posen a young legal scholar at Columbia Law School, who has done some enormously interesting work in this vein, notes how, quote, the state and federal governments are important sites of political affiliation. Our contemporary federal system, she writes, generates a check on the federal government and fosters divided citizen loyalties, but it does so for an unexplored reason, because it provides durable and robust scaffolding for partisan conflict. She goes on to say, we can thus locate federalism in the, quote, legally and politically generative interaction among the state and federal governments and the American people, end quote. With this, Bowman-Posen flips the script, describing the relationship between states and the federal government as not a situs for confrontation, but as a means for fruitful interaction on behalf of we the people. In a somewhat similar vein, Dean Robert Shapiro of Emory's Law School argues for what he calls a polyphonic federalism one which sees the national, state, and local governments as a complementary series of multiple voices and power centers. Conflicts will occur, says Shapiro, but it is through the conflicts that federalism works. State and federal interaction and confrontation are part of the system. They are harnessed to advance the goals of federalism. The new process federalism captures some important truths indeed about the dynamic relationship among institutions and government. This body of work and the ample political science literature upon which it relies is rightly framed around the political structure of intergovernmental relations. Whether or not saying so explicitly, it effaces the traditional idea that our federalism is dual federalism, one in which the state and national governments act as separate enclaves with a delineated division of power, expertise, and responsibility. Yet while the light shed on government performance and modern regulatory policymaking is bright— the light shed on the management and and resolution by independent authorities of disputes, which cannot or should not be settled by ordinary politics, is considerably dimmer. In order to think about the shape of constitutional conflict, where cooperation breaks down, we must better understand the incentives and interests of officials acting with the authority of the federal, state, and local governments. More ambitiously, I would say we need a theory of purposive governmental behavior. Matters of incentives and efficiency are at the heart of the contemporary economic analysis of federalism. And while I call this contemporary, this is an old theme in the sense that its roots can be traded to Madison's warning about the deleterious effects of factions and the salutary effect of an extended republic. A powerful national government represents an auxiliary precaution to guard against externalities and diseconomies of scale and to assure the citizenry that there will be adequate provision of public goods. In some important work of a couple decades back, Don Regan of Michigan helpfully tied together these basic economic principles with the framers' core objectives, referring to the language in the Virginia Plan that the national government should step in principally when states prove incompetent to act in ways beneficial to we the people. We should ask, says Regan, what special reason there is for the federal government to have that power. What reason is there to think the states are incapable or untrustworthy? This is, to me, a beautiful way to ask the question. And indeed, the principle of subsidiarity, especially animate in the European context, asks essentially the same sort of question, in that it focuses on where is the most feasible place for the exercise of regulatory power. Thus framed, a body of work that grows out of political economy has emerged recently to explain why federalism looks the way it does in the United States. An especially important contribution in this vein comes out of the law school here at UC Berkeley from work done by my former colleague, Bob Cooter, and one of his and my former students, now Duke law professor, Neil Siegel. In a recent article, Cooter and Siegel furnish a novel explanation of the Commerce Clause. I won't take the time here to describe the many layers of their argument, but I will just focus on some of their central assumptions. They embrace the premise that the national government is one of limited powers, and should exercise authority only where there are good reasons to believe that the states are incapable of overcoming collective action problems. By analogy to the Coase theorem, in a world of zero transaction costs, the bargaining between the national and state governments should get us to an optimal result without judicial intervention. Yet, as Cooter and Siegel show, transaction costs are ubiquitous. In particular, the structure of majority rule impedes the ability of states to form interstate compacts, and moreover, threatens minorities within the states with exploitation. They explain, and I quote, as more parties must cooperate, the transaction costs of cooperation increase, and so does the probability of failure. Consequently, the probability that federal power is required to solve an interstate externality increases as the number of affected states increase. End quote. But why should we, the people, worry about this? The answer Cooter and Siegel give is that states will have an incentive to free ride, given the fact that collective action problems will lead to spillovers affecting two or more states. If the problem is not addressed, they argue, citizens will suffer from too few interstate public goods, too many harmful interstate externalities, and not enough interstate commerce, quote. National authority under the Commerce Clause is designed to handle these externalities in light of these incentives, they write. Indeed, as they say, to the extent that, quote, all states are affected, the advantages of federal power are overwhelming. These and other economic perspectives on federalism address squarely the matter of constitutional conflict and give us some good insights on why it emerges. However, we need to make sure we are asking and answering the right questions. Scholars working in this political economy tradition look at the question of how the structure of federalism addresses collective action dilemmas in order to provide public goods and preserve markets. But embedded in this way of asking the question is the normative idea that these economic considerations largely exhaust the purposes of federalism. However, it is not clear that the framers thought so, nor is it clear that we should think likewise. So when Regan and Cooter and Siegel speak of the incapacity of state governments, we need to clarify what what it is within our constitutional framework that states are responsible to do. Or to put it another way, what does federalism do to empower state governments and to shape the contours and aspirations of state power? In a valuable essay written for a symposium on the Warren Court, held here at Berkeley several years ago, Harvard's Vicki Jackson pointed out that constitutional federalism during the Warren Court period had the novel effect of expanding the space and scope of state legislative power, this in the service of augmenting individual rights and progressive social policy. Although I think that Professor Jackson, ever the good liberal, may be somewhat overeager in connecting federalism of the Warren Court to widening state power, it bears noting that federalism may indeed serve important purposes not captured by the logic of economics. The final contribution to big-picture big theories of federalism I want to mention is the important work of Heather Gerken of the Yale Law School. Power dynamics in the American federal system, Gerken tells us, can be usefully divided between the governors and the servants, and she seeks to recover the voice and power of the servant. In the foreword to the Supreme Court issue of the Harvard Law Review from five years ago, Professor Gerken lays out the normative case for what she calls, quote, Federalism all the way down. This is a robust federalism which protects the power of subnational governments as a means of poking and provoking national political institutions and officials into making more socially just decisions. The power of the servant is the power to dissent, to exercise, as she puts it, quote, voice in an exceedingly muscular form. These dissenters, acting within the authorized governance frameworks of the state and local governments, can stir up trouble and engage in conflict, as well as cooperation and conflict on behalf of dissenting minorities. The power to move their agendas forward into the consciousness of national authorities and the broad general public comes from their insider status. States and local officials administering federal law, Gerken writes, can edit the law they lack the power to authorize precisely because they are inside the system, not outside of it. So for example, The decision by San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom in 2004 to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples despite any reasonable basis in existing state constitutional law for this decision had the beneficial effect of engaging the national debate in a constructive way. But but what the fact that this political move by the mayor was beaten back by the California Supreme Court eventually? Says Gherkin, quote, while local resistance surely has its costs, Minority rule at the local level generates a dynamic form of contestation, the democratic churn necessary for an ossified national system to change, end quote. Let us be clear on the underlying normative agenda at work here. Hers is a national project. Indeed, she situates this argument in a growing literature which she labels federalism as the new nationalism, what federalism all the way down aspires to do is to help the project of building good national policy. This is true not only the functions of state governments in implementing federal law, but also in the circumstances in which state governments are enacting state law. This is a really remarkable twist when you think about it. Even purely state law should be seen as a means of advancing national interests. As our Yale colleague Abby Gluck puts it succinctly, quote, Congress has asked the states to enact their own state laws Create new state institutions and pass new state administrative regulations. In other words, to exercise their sovereign powers in service of the national statutory project. So, to summarize the argument federalism creates the space for democratic contestation by citizens exercising voice at the subnational level and in ways that national authorities are obliged to respect. And this will counteract the power of majorities to use. Federal institutions to dampen dissent and disable minorities. Loyal opposition, as she calls it, by subnational governments enables minorities to speak truth to power. Not your father's federalism, to borrow from Gherkin borrowing from the old Oldsmobile commercial. But by any measure, Heather Gherkin's reframing of federalism and its purposes is bold, creative, and ingeniously argued. Taken as a complete story of what federalism purports to accomplish, it helps explain a hard puzzle. Why ought state and local governments flourish to flourish, notwithstanding the post-New Deal reconfiguration of national-state relations and the necessary augmentation of federal power? However, where Gherkin's account falls short, and not just a little short, but very short, is in its disconnect from anything we might plausibly see in the broad historical narrative of American constitutional history on the one hand, and in the political science literature on intergovernmental relations on the other. And central to the new process, federalism, more generally, is that the so-called safeguards will protect state and local governments in their realms, in their enclaves, in their ambitions to act locally, not nationally. So where do we find in our historical narrative, in our political science, Professor Gerken's idea that the servant is resolutely focused on the well-being of general national public policy? So... I've spent a good deal of time to now discussing some of the most important recent work on big picture federalism theory, principally in order to situate my own ideas in the current debates. But before I get there, I need to say at least a few words about modern perspectives on localism. First, a quick piece of black letter law. Local governments are not sovereign entities, but are creatures of state government. And not just because I say so. This is indeed the core principle of Hunter versus Pittsburgh, a seminal 1907 decision in which the court rejected the idea that there was anything in the United States Constitution that protects municipal sovereignty. This remains very much the standard wisdom in our constitutional tradition. As Columbia's Richard Brafalt puts the point, quote, a local government is like a state administrative agency, serving the state in its narrow area of expertise. But instead of being functional specialists, localities are given jurisdictions primarily by territory, end quote. Despite the constitutional architecture of local governance as I've described it, the reality in modern America is considerably more complicated. Let me throw some more black-letter learning your way. Although the U.S. Constitution does not give to local governments a constitutional status, state constitutions often do so. A number of state constitutions, including California's, give municipalities so-called home rule powers, The late Berkeley law professor Shosato, who Harry mentioned in the introduction, explained how these powers include not only the enabling authority for municipalities to act, but also an immunity from state legislation, which interferes with so-called municipal affairs. For those states in which localities have such immunities, there is an imperium and imperial of sorts, and the challenge for state courts is to figure out where municipalities' purely local affairs end and matters of statewide concern begin the practical consequences of these home rule powers present a messy picture, and it is a picture which I won't attempt to unravel here, although I have written a fair amount about it over the years. For my purposes, it is enough for now to say two things about the subject. First, the fact of municipal home rule, both in its strong imperium and imperial form and in its more tempered model in which localities have delegated police powers by the state constitution, undoubtedly affects the balance of power between state and local governments. And second... The ways in which the Home Rule and related doctrines help municipalities operationalize policy-making choice presents issues, fascinating issues, of fragmentation and competition. Issues that bear not only on the relationship between state and local governments, but also between localities and the national government. Now to the scholarship. The last two decades has brought a renewed understanding of and appreciation for the functions and authority of local governments. Scholars from various ideological stripes and disciplines have looked closely at the dynamic relationship among state and local governments and have emerged with a sketch of a new and improved localism. The political theory underlying this prescriptive analysis is multilayered, but certainly the theme of mistrust of central power and local self-governance can be traced back to Jefferson and to Tocqueville in the period of the founding and the early republic. Yet, as a number of prominent local government law scholars have shown us, the normative case for a robust localism never really went away. Constitutional theorist and Michigan Supreme Court Justice Thomas Cooley, for example, argued mightily for a constitutional status of local governments under state constitutional law traditions in the late 19th century. And traces of this argument not only survive Hunter in the 20th century, but emerge in and after the progressive era in proposed checks on state legislative authority through a more circumscribed police power. The current work on local governance in the United States is especially exciting. Several scholars assess how local governments succeed in assembling communities of interest and affinity in order to facilitate particular policy goals and to innovate in the making and implementation of social policy. These scholarly analyses are as imaginative as they are diverse. In the interest of time, I'll mention just two. Several local government scholars are interested in how legal rules and regulations enacted at both the central and local level facilitate policy and political innovation. Underpinning a good deal of this work is the literature on so-called agglomeration economics, described in mostly accessible form in Harvard economist Edward Glazer's terrific book, The Triumph of the City. Borrowing from an article I wrote recently with Yale's David Schleicher, the basic idea behind agglomeration economics is this. First... Locating in a city near people one does business with reduces transportation costs for goods. Second, participating in a big labor market, such as, say, in the Silicon Valley or Chicago, provides individuals and firms with gains from specialization, sorting, and insurance. And finally, agglomeration generates information spillovers, that is, things people learn from other people who are nearby. From these insights, Schleicher and I explain how zoning policies can distort these beneficial agglomeration effects by artificially raising the cost of housing and forcing people out of these valuable enclaves. And elsewhere, Professor Schleicher notes, that the structure of local government law more generally can undermine these important sorting values. I won't belabor the point, except to say that this cutting edge work in political economy has generated a broad and deep research agenda in the field. The other stand I'll brief, uh, strand I'll briefly mention concerns scholarship on the configuration of particular local governmental structures and regulatory arrangements. The core premise of this work is that organization matters. Function follows form, to invert the famous phrase from modern architecture. The creative ways in which public officials exercise power within and through this architecture for a growing number of local government scholars is the fundamental positive and normative question. Lee Fennell of the University of Chicago, Rick Hills from NYU and others have been active important contributors to this line of what we might call neo-institutional analysis of local governmental forms. Among the new wave of scholars, Michelle Anderson, a Berkeley Law graduate and a former member of this faculty, has been writing about the impact and import institutional arrangements on key policy areas, including insolvency, racial segregation, and sprawl. And my own Northwestern colleague, Nadav Shokhed, has urged us to look both at quasi-governmental arrangements and also at sub-municipal institutions, such as neighborhood districts, a phenomenon he calls micro-localism. This and other work is valuable not only for the interesting governance structures and strategies described and theorized about, but also for what it tells us about the complexity of local governments, and thus of localism as a constitutional concept. So, where are we? Federalism and localism are two distinct topics, to be sure. However, can these two isms be tied together in a meaningful way? I'll offer, for now, a small answer to this big question, and we'll return to this theme at the end of my lecture. Let us start with what's distinct. Federalism is deeply embedded in our American constitutional system as simultaneously a principle, a theory, and a doctrinal rubric. The prevailing wisdom is that constitutional federalism provides a meaningful space for states and state authority, and further, there will be instances in which federal interventions will be unwarranted, perhaps even unconstitutional. Localism, by contrast, is contingent and incomplete. Indeed, it is really a made-up locution to describe what is essentially a normative debate, That is, whether local governments should have more or less power to act and to resist state encroachment. Moreover, this debate takes place in the shadow, I remind you, of the basic principle that these local governments are creatures of the state government. All is not lost, however, for we can look at the common thread question another way around. We should see federalism and localism as reinforcing the dynamic relationship among all levels of government in the United States. In this sense, these isms have the reinforcing function of protecting the general structure of policymaking and of facilitating governance by ensuring against raw aggrandizement and suboptimal encroachments by the central spheres of public authority. How realistic is it to suppose that federalism and localism can be mobilized to achieve these ambitious aims? The answer to this big question lies in a fuller conception of how our various units of government in the U.S. function not just a description of how policy is made, but a theory of institutional behavior and performance. What makes state and local governments tick? This is the question to which I now turn. So, we are told by many of the leading federalism scholars, including those whose views I have canvassed just now, that to better understand the legal status of states and cities in our constitutional framework, we need to understand the dynamics of intergovernmental relations. Indeed, some have urged a so-called relational approach to federalism, one which is invested as both an empirical and a theoretical matter in understanding what drives the national, state, and local governments. This is exactly right, as I see it, with the added proviso that we need to understand as well the underlying structures of these governmental units and also have plausible models of how they are motivated and how they behave. We, of course, get a good head start on such model building by the insights of our founding fathers. James Madison made the famous point in the Locus Classicus of American Constitutional Theory, Federalist Number 10, that individuals and public officials will pursue their own ambitions, and therefore, ambition must counteract ambition. Yet it was Hamilton who dug deeper into the question of how to think about the competition that would likely arise between layers and levels of government. In Federalist 28, he reminded us that power is almost always the rival of power. Indeed, the the national and state governments are frequently rivals, as are state and local governments. They compete for the loyalties of and the benefits of citizens. They use electoral structures and political institutions, including, for example, political parties, to mobilize support to secure acquiescence and, where necessary, to divide and to conquer. Opportunistic federalism, as Professor Ernie Young of Duke summarizes the point, quote, is consistent with the founders' design. Yet, it is crucial, I would argue, to see this opportunism on the part of state and local governments not as institutional self-dealing or some conspiracy to undermine electoral accountability, but as ordinary tactics to effectuate the will of the people whose preferences and objectives are realized through the deliberate actions of these units. Further, I would insist that this relationship be viewed as one between principles and agents. Of course, citizens are the principles in this model we have a uh, a mixture of policy preferences. I care about, say, a clean environment, the financial well-being of my family, access to education, reliable health care, equality of opportunity, and national security. Others, of course, will have a different mix. Some of these goals for me are best realized through national policy, national security, for example. Others through local policy, say, land use. And for the rest, I may well be agnostic about which level of government implements my preferences. Just work the problem, folks. Or as Larry, the cable guy, says more colorfully, just get her done. Knowing the different policy goals align with different institutional capacities and tactics, I am likely to want my government to be made up of multiple agents. That is a mix of institutions, all working in a synthetic system. Isn't this just collaborative federalism or localism in another strike? No, not really. I may or may not care at all about collaboration. If one of my interests can be best realized locally, I do not care a whit about whether the local government reaches up to the state or national government to collaborate on policy outcomes. To recur to the idea behind subsidiarity, I'm satisfied to have my interests facilitated and goods provided by the unit most capable of providing it and which governmental institution I can best count on to carry out my wishes. So to summarize... Guidance by citizen principles to their governmental agents will reflect an aggregation of these preferences and a complex political algorithm that looks first at what majorities want with regard to a large cluster of policies. And second, the system of governance that is most likely to successfully aggregate these preferences, and in the case of those in the minority, ensure that their rights are protected against majority expropriation and oppression. This principal-agent formulation has implications for federalism in a couple relevant senses. First, citizens will be largely indifferent about states' rights and local autonomy. Sure, they may have ideological preferences on the matter, but history suggests that these ideological preferences will give way to their policy preferences. This is, to me, illustrated in all its glory by the infamous Tea Party protest sign, which reads, Keep the government's hands off my Medicare. Second, citizens will want their units of government to maintain sufficient authority and flexibility so as to carry out their will when they are tasked thusly. To put the point in stark terms, sure, local governments are creatures of state government to be assembled and disassembled at the will of the state legislature, but as a practical matter, citizens want local governments to exist and want them to have adequate power to act on their behalf. This is to me the most plausible explanation for why there are over 40,000 general purpose governments in the United States at the local level. If localism did not exist as an abstract constitutional construct, citizens would demand that it exist as a mechanism to assure that there will be carried out. One of the tacit assumptions behind the so-called nationalist perspectives on federalism is that once majorities secure their policy ambitions, they would prefer to have these reflected in national policy. Why not, after all, have the national government decree a uniform policy? This is the underlying lo- eventually. This is the underlying logic of the so-called laboratories of experimentation idea, famously associated with Justice Brandeis and developed by scholar advocates of federalism who have long urged an adequate protection of state authority from national encroachment for just this purpose. As Steve Sugarman puts it, quote, "Federalism is a spark for innovation and experimentation in government, leading to convergence on policies." that proves successful. However, my suggestion here gets at something different. The laboratory's idea, after all, rests on a scientific analogy, one that supposes that states and localities will try on for size different policies, thereby gathering data that will help us discover which policy ought to be made into national policy. As with science, the assumption is we're using subnational governments to carry out experiments in order to get to a general truth of the matter. Yet citizens may not crave such certainty, or such ultimate truth. They want what they want, and there may not not be this firm interest on the part of the people in having the truth win out by a successful policy being unfurled at the national level. And indeed, uniformity may be inconsistent with their interests. Take, for example, the matter of same-sex marriage. We can plausibly assume that advocates of same-sex marriage want their rights to marry the individual of their choosing recognized not only at the state level, but at the national level. This is not so only for the admirable ideological reason that such advocates do not want these rights to track only state boundaries, but also for the practical reason that they want their marriages respected wherever they happen to live. So a national definition of marriage makes perfect sense. From this perspective, whether or not the definition of marriage is national, nonetheless, most of the elements of what marriage means and entails will be configured At the state level, the rules governing, for example, marital dissolution and the distribution of property will remain state issues, whatever the Supreme Court decides this summer in Obergefell versus Hodges. As a practical matter, same-sex marriage advocates thus might favor broad national power to assure that their right to marry the partner of their choosing is respected, but still cherish their state rules governing, say, community property and child custody. So let's return to the matter of incentives and see how the interests of citizens and of subnational governments can be tied together. For the citizens, we can think about their strategies as a sort of political arbitrage. That is, citizens will use their knowledge about their own preferences, including their discount rates and such, and also knowledge about the governmental institutions which are in a position to facilitate or undermine those interests. Subnational governments are engaging in a quite similar process of political arbitrage, And they do so not only as automatic aggregators of constituent preferences, but as institutional actors with their own interests, as, quote, states qua states, as John Yu writes. They will make decisions in the shadow of electoral constraints and in order to match their policies with the preferences of their constituents and their advocates. And in doing so, they will often cooperate with and collaborate with the central government and occasionally with other states or local governments in the horizontal context. Other times, however, their strategies will bring them into conflict with central authorities. And it is here when they are truly caught between two masters, the central government on the one hand and their citizen principles on the other. Despite the risk of conflict and confrontation, which is all around, these institutions of governance need and want the flexibility to act on behalf of their citizens and to maintain the discretion and the power to pursue objectives without unnecessary interference. Subnational governments are essentially the conduit for the pursuit of discrete and general interests by citizens and as such, citizens have a strong interest in ensuring both a plurality of such governments and as well a reasonable assurance that these units will have the appropriate authority and techniques to manage conflict. Furthermore, these subnational governments want and need legal protections in order to protect their prerogatives as important institutions of governance. As Professor Young says about states, quote, the emphasis on the institutional interests of state governments is critical because virtually all the important benefits of federalism stem from the existence of the states as self-governing entities. States cannot function as checks on the power of the central government or as laboratories of experimental regulation if they lack the institutional ability to govern themselves in meaningful ways. End quote. So to this juncture, I've toggled back and forth between federalism and localism. But I want to, at this point, to suggest that the idea of political arbitrage is a particularly resonant theme with regard to local governments. And this is because of the intriguing fact that local governments can be formed in a more customized way by contrast to the states, which exist in the form established at the time of their admission to the union and under the constitution cannot be changed at the will of the federal government or the citizens writ large. Charles Thibault pointed out many years ago that the size of local governments reflect the interests of citizens as reflected in their choice to exit and enter and to create a geographically defined polity that advances their interests. Yet I would suggest there is a more general iteration of this insight, one that has special relevance to our modern world of local governance. Local governments in the United States are essentially of two types, general purpose governments, such as cities and counties, and special purpose governments, those formed by the choices of local citizens and the states in tandem in order to carry out particular purposes, such as management of transportation, electric power, water supply, and so on. Like municipalities, special purpose governments, and by the way, there are nearly 40,000 of them currently in the United States, are creatures of the state. But unlike municipalities, they are truly customized creatures. How about this for a mental picture? They're more like a robot than like Frankenstein's monster, the latter of which resembles a human being of sorts, but the former need not be human in any discernible way, shape, or form. Now that you have that in your mind, more to the point, The special-purpose governments enable states to circumvent local power and to accomplish goals that might otherwise be frustrated by localities. And it is not insignificant that these forms of government lack home rule authority and thus have only those powers expressly delegated to them by the states. Not so fast. Local local citizens have their own card to play. They can and will often look toward quasi-governmental institutions, such as, for example, common interest developments, in order to create mechanisms for implementing their preferences and more radically to retreat from the public sphere. These sorts of customized institutions threaten to upend or at least problematize the traditional conception of localism by giving citizens the opportunity to create a governance strategy that is more carefully tailored to their specific policy interests and concerns. While these institutions are not immune from governmental action or influence, They are intriguing devices to drive decision making from the government to smaller institutions over which local citizens have comparatively greater control. The relationship between these creative instruments of power, general purpose governments, special uh, purpose governments, and common interest developments is beyond the scope of this lecture. But I will just note that a comprehensive theory of localism and perhaps even of federalism requires attention to these structures. Having sketched a picture of self-protective governmental units engaging in political arbitrage, let me now turn to the subject of constitutional conflict. The idea that subnational governments pursue their interests and agendas in ways that come into conflict with higher authorities can be illustrated with various examples. I'll describe two, one that is about federalism and the other about localism. The first example about federalism grows out of the Supreme Court's line of cases concerning the predicament of so-called commandeering. In New York versus United States, and later in Prince versus United States, the Supreme Court struck down parts of important federal legislation on the grounds that Congress cannot conscript state and local officials to enforce and implement federal law. Acknowledging that Congress has the full authority to impose nationwide regulation in these areas, the Court warned nonetheless against a strategy of implementation that would basically commandeer state or local officials to implement national law the worry expressed by the court was essentially a political one. The federal government would be shifting the political blame to state officials through this strategy, thereby capturing the benefits of the policy at the national level without bearing the costs. Scholars, many scholars, have argued strenuously against this anti-commandeering principle as a matter of constitutional law, and I don't want to wade into that debate here. I just want to use this example to illustrate the shape of constitutional conflict. That is the point the state and federal government may come into conflict because of the structure of political interests. The feds have an interest in imposing national policy, but doing so elides responsibility. The local governments likewise want to avoid blame. The impasse can be resolved only by politics or by adjudication. In these cases, federalism comes to the rescue by providing a legal constraint on the national government engaging in this opportunistic behavior. My second example comes not from case law, but from an interesting phenomenon in state constitutionalism, one that involves the structure of criminal justice. In the state constitutional context, statewide criminal justice matters are handled by a state attorney general, a constitutional officer elected by the people of the state and part of what is called the plural executive. The attorney general acts as the agent of the state and its citizens, not interestingly as an agent of the governor or the legislature. And insofar as she is attentive to the electorate, makes choices about criminal justice with her eye on statewide political considerations. Moreover, the content of criminal law and the architecture of the criminal justice system is set mainly at the state level. But herein lies the rub. Most of the enforcement powers and the actual operation of the criminal justice system is carried out at the local level by district attorneys, by judges elected at the local level, by juries assembled locally and by law enforcement officers hired, trained, and instructed by municipal officials. At first glance, this may reflect an ordinary managerial strategy, not unlike, say, the Office of Civil Rights, the Department of Education, or immigration officials working through local offices to implement national policy. Upon closer inspection, however, this dual structure reflects a distinct and tricky political dynamic. After all, the state attorney general is elected by a statewide constituency. Moreover, the state legislature, and to some degree the governor, will set the parameters for criminal law enforcement by this state official and her office. Furthermore, the AG will have mechanisms available for influencing and even at times controlling local law enforcement discretion. However, at the same time, local officials, including DAs, judges, and police officers, are predictably attentive to local constituencies. Their constraints, therefore, from the top, and from the bottom, are serious and important, and often collide with one another. How they navigate these constraints is a central vexing issue in modern criminal justice. Localism provides the key framework within which these issues are negotiated. So how does this model of interinstitutional governance, which I have sketched, map onto the critical scholarship on federalism and localism described above? For new process federalists, the focus on, new process scholars of federalism, the focus on political processes requires some additional attention to what motivates public officials and how they take these motivations into the venue of discrete institutions of governance. New process federalists, as I mentioned above, rightly focus on the dynamics of relations among governments. Professor Bowman-Posen, who I mentioned before, shrewdly captures the point that federalism can capture this inner institutional structure, this inner institutional struggle, except she comes at it in a very different way than do I. Here I quote from her. Federalism divides power and offers a structure for substantive views to compete. It does not specify what the recipients of divided power should use it for, nor does it equate particular views with one level of government or the other. Claims that political actors undermine federalism by marshalling arguments for state power in an opportunistic way and treating federalism as a convenient arrangement through which to pursue policy agendas indicts our founders as well as contemporary politicians. More deeply, such claims overlook the significance of federalism in establishing loci of political conflict, whether this conflict is driven by state institutional interests, partisanship, or something else, end quote. For other new process federalism scholars, particularly those taken with collaborative federalism, they might caution that conflict and competition seems inconsistent with this happy picture. True, policymaking need not be a zero-sum game. However, even though collaboration may be the modal choice, governments will want to protect their discretion to engage in political arbitrage. Moreover, conflict will happen. That is in the nature of politics, where there is heterogeneity in and varying intensity of policy preferences, and moreover, strategies available to move objectives ahead. Therefore, there will indeed be instances in which the interests at stake mean that the assertion of local power will provide benefits captured at, say, the local level, and by such capturing, render them unavailable to officials at other levels of government. And this brings me back to Heather Gerken. The idea that federalism should be understood as a mechanism for fomenting dissent and destabilizing political power can coexist, is that it can coexist with a model of inter-institutional competition and conflict. Indeed, the very notion that the state government will pursue its own objectives and in doing so may threaten the interests and well-being of minorities is what should energize the power of the servant and the process by which local minorities decide by dissenting. The missing piece of the puzzle, however, is how best to think of the functions of local governments qua governments. What Gherkin has on offer is a novel normative picture of decentralizing government power so as to empower other levels of government to act, not by contrast to a libertarian vision of disassembling governance institutions so as to reduce the wicked impact of public authority over private choice. Essential to this narrative, therefore, is a compelling depiction And I would say a plausible theory that explains the actions of officials acting with public authority through discernible governmental institutions. Just a very brief aside, where do do utility functions and motivations fit into this picture? There is surely more to say about this subject than I can sketch here. But I believe we can be ultimately agnostic about the connection between behavior and motives. All I would say here is that state and local governments pursue various objectives. Some may be economically motivated, but some may be motivated by the desire to do good on behalf of their citizens. To think about this in broad theoretical terms, some local officials may be relentless budget maximizers. Others may be good Burkeans. The view that these governance institutions pursue their own objectives, pursuits which come into conflict with other levels of government, indeed accommodates the myriad of incentives and motivations that emerge from citizen preferences, however forged and articulated. So we should focus not on motivation, but on behavior and performance. As I come toward the end of this lecture, I want to address just briefly what all this has to do with the law of federalism and the law of localism, and finally how these two threads can be tied together to illuminate broad themes in structural constitutional law. After all, we should keep in mind that there remains not only a theory of federalism and of localism, but doctrines of federalism and localism. And it is the interpretation of federalism and localism in the courts that generates most of the noise and drama. First, a small point. I'm in general agreement with the view expressed resolutely in most of the contemporary commentary on federalism that dual federalism is deeply unsatisfactory as a template for judicial decision-making. We would do well to continue to pour dirt on the grave of dual federalism. There is little use to continue to struggle over defining the separate spheres of federal and state authority. Edward Corwin noted dual federalism's passing many decades ago, so let's let it pass already. I come back to Harry Scheiber's observation from nearly 20 years ago that, quote, after what seems at times to be an ever-broadening attack on government at all levels, the homilies of federalism, states' rights, and returning power to the states began to ring hollow. Second, a somewhat larger point. The depiction of governmental motivation and performance here should give us pause in moving to either extreme of the spectrum on how best to resolve federalism and localism disputes in the courts. Complete deference to judgments of central authorities on the grounds that political safeguards will handle the problem does not account for the fact that institutions are often strategic actors who will look to maximize their institutional self-interest. Nor will parties or a strong chief executive solve this dilemma once and for all. Ambition must counteract ambition, to be sure. While I share with others some unease about judicial intervention in inter-institutional conflict, I do believe that judicial scrutiny of some sort is warranted to keep the processes of political arbitrage in adequate check. With regard to federalism, I think Ernie Young has it right when he says, quote, the issue will be how to ensure a prompt feedback loop between on-the-ground implementers and national policymakers, while ensuring that we do not build in so much leeway as to create opportunities for shirking and sheer recalcitrance. End quote. And this scrutiny will be especially important, I would argue, in state and local disputes, given the unsteady position of local governments in state constitutionalism. A larger point the shape of constitutional conflict undergirds a possibly new perspective on federalism and localism. The empirical study of intergovernmental relations is an essential part of the picture. And we have an immense and still evolving literature to draw upon both in the federalism and localism space. And finally this, what do we talk about when we talk about federalism and localism? What is the real goal underlying our normative inquiry? Is it protecting the prerogative of these separate spheres of government, facilitating collaboration, provoking dissent? My discussion of federalism and localism hopefully opens up at least part of a way to erode to answering these big questions. The topic remains centrally important. Indeed, the structure of American politics and the performance of government in our modern administrative state suggests that fascinating and novel institutions and techniques are well worth studying in depth and detail. What Professor Scheiber says about federalism could be extended to localism as well. The real debate, he writes, is about what kind of government this nation will have and ultimately about the process that will reveal through our policies what kind of people we have become. The connection between federalism and localism is crucially important and indeed close attention to this reflects what is to me the next great frontier of study in the law and theory of intergovernmental relations. The tall task is to bring together federalism and localism in order to look at the dynamics of American policymaking. These two isms, I would suggest, deserve a coherent if not entirely common, theoretical vocabulary. After all, both federalism and localism deal with the fundamental dynamics of constitutional governance in America. Once brought together, the object of prescriptive analysis is to explore how legal rules, existing rules, and new rules we might devise, affect the shape of constitutional conflict between and among our institutions of governance. How do and ought these rules perform this ambitious task? Well, that is truly a topic for another lecture. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Dan. I just um, will not ask a question, but just uh, Adam Braid on one point where you spoke about um, having a plurality of states, meaning a plurality of policies is, is terribly important, so that the American map of federalism looks like a mosaic, and it shifts around. A, a, a metaphor I've used a lot. Um, it, it, it's it's um, people are people are interested in maintaining the strength of their the autonomy of their state in this policy area, but they also have an interest in being able to move on, and find a more congenial environment. And I think that's. I mean, you came back to that when you talked about Tebow, but I, I thought that was a one thing that um, uh, illustrates well your general uh, concern. Um, taking federalism seriously is a, a phrase that some of us used years ago, and were accused of aiding and abetting states' rights. <laughs> well, taking federalism ser- seriously is a is a um, became a a. Um, came a slogan for Ed Meese and the Reagan administration when they were, and I I was myself in a debate with Meese at the Smithsonian in which I followed him and I decided, I retitled my address just before I got to the stage and I said, taking the 14th Amendment seriously is also important because the nation was restructured and the constitutional system restructured in 1868. So we come back to that constitutional question as you said and giving it the kind of dynamic um, uh, shape that Dan has in talking about all these new theories that have been put out in this very fascinating congeries of writings that have appeared and that you summarize so well, um, I think you've given us much food for thought, which is the purpose of the Jefferson lectures, and no one could have done it better than you. Thank well, you, Dan.
0: Thank you, Harry. I appreciate that one one you know a- a- as as I'm sure you know, I was. Shamelessly name-dropping various faculty members, many of whom at Bolt, and, and two folks who, who who didn't who who were left on the cutting room floor just in the interest of time deserve mention, if just for 30 seconds here. And that is uh, my colleagues, our colleagues, Malcolm Feely and Ed Rubin, who famously and, and powerfully uh, argued for and continue to argue for sort of uh, uh, attention away from federalism. And, uh, and, and viewing, you know, to summarize their complex uh, 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 analysis in a nutshell, that anything that federalism does in terms of any of these values could be best or better protected through modalities of decentralization and federalism should, uh, should remain, as they put it, a national neurosis of, of, of separateness. Now, commenting on that is well beyond the scope of my talk. I'll just say 10 seconds on it, which is it really misses the mark about the institutional structure of power that exists in, again, states qua states, which is not just about decentralization, and also in local governments and the relationship in state governments. So I just say that summarizing all of the advantages of decentralization under the rubric of subsidiarity or or other devices misses out on a lot of the texture of why federalism is about states, not about state rights, but about state power. Not just about power of you know different enclaves on a on a you know on a Rorschach test kind of map of uh, of America. But there's much more to say about about Ed and and, and Malcolm's uh, work than I can do it now.
2: Thank you so much for your lecture. Um, One of the comments that you made about uh, that citizens care about their policy preferences being enacted above all and they may identify or express allegiance to that level of government that will enact um, their preferences made me wonder more generally about the role of we the people. And I wondered if there had been surveys or other empirical research done on citizens' levels of identification with particular levels of government or their allegiance, and whether that should matter uh, in our thinking about federalism and localism. Um,
0: you know, it's a great question. I confess I really don't know. Uh, I, I, I would want to believe the answer to that is yes, and it's just about looking for it and finding it, and, and as you put it, uh, really understanding with greater nuance what the data reveals about, uh, about individual preferences, which, of course, entails a large and overlapping literature about about political sociology, political economy, citizen preference. I confess I really don't know. All I will say, and it's sort of as an elliptical response, not at the level of surveying uh, individuals, but judging how individuals who have the power to form or reform local governments, be they general-purpose governments or special-purpose governments, and I'm here referring to everything from secession to annexation and all of these devices, that they seldom exercise that power. That they seem to, to, to remain, if not hardwired, then strongly committed to their citizens, their muni- uh, sorry, to their cities, to the structure of their local governments, suggests that something is important that's going on. Because if they were com- utterly agnostic, had very little identification, and like Thibault, Charles Thibault, they were just voting with their feet, they were exercising, as Albert Hirschman puts it, exit, rather than either voice or loyalty, we'd have a patchwork quilt, I think, of local governments that would look very different than we have now, which suggests to me there's something going on about citizens' commitments to Berkeley rather than just to a glob that's up here in this, you know, in this, in this, in this part of the world.
1: I wonder if you might say a little more about um, common interest subdivisions um, in the light of the fact that those are normally formed by real estate development corporations, and uh, the common interest appears only after the community has been sold. So it, it, it may end up very much like uh, a local government, but it certainly doesn't start that way.
0: I think that's a, a, a fair point, uh, 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 absolutely fair point. It's not like uh, all these folks gathered together Uh, in the original position, as it were, and say, you know, we ought to formulate, form all these common interest developments. Generally speaking, uh, whether they're moving into a, you know, condominium association or common interest development, these are contracts of adhesion. Is it right? These are take-it-or-leave-it arrangements. And indeed, one of the big critiques, multifaceted critique, against this uh, common interest development, as one scholar put it, I think, about a dozen years ago, this privatopia is precisely that it just reinforces the kind of uh, uh, compulsion from the state level but through the rubric of a so-called private development that was created by real estate developers in a previous time. All right, having said all that, it's always compared to what? And so uh, if the question is how ordinary citizens should view power exercised by these quasi-private, quasi-public arrangements, common interest developments, which, taking your point, will often be something that they come into when already established, versus moving into a city jurisdictional boundaries or moving into a county's jurisdictional boundaries. That's where I really think the more novel and creative device of these, of these quasi public institutions have some, uh, have some, have some pull moreover. And this of course depends in large part on the size and scope of these developments, but there are opportunities for voice, not only opportunities for exit, but opportunities for voice. And so whether it's through the reconstruction of bylaws and regulations uh, or whether it's through uh, 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 homeowner associations or the like, the choice that individual citizens are making to prefer to have a lot of their provision of goods provided through institutions that they have, relatively speaking, greater direct control over right, is what's tempting and intriguing about engaging in those relationships. But, but, it, but it raises an enormously wide issue that involves not only the question of how voluntary are these associations, which is the point you raise, but also how autonomous are those organizations from state law and from other local law, which is part of the reason I was so tempted to say, as I did say in my lecture, this is beyond the scope of my lecture. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not like an introduction to a little talk about the relationship of the campuses to the University of California president. Oh, I don't, I, you know, I, I don't want to wade into that. I've Can't. been a <laughs> <deep> <laughs> too long to know I don't want to wade into that. Katie, would you?
1: Okay. Uh, Professor Alberston, yes. last question.
2: So I just uh, a quick question is whether we should be concerned in a different way about federalism when we're talking about the rights of those that might be relatively politically powerless at the local and the state level and you alluded to school desegregation uh Brown versus Plata is another example from California where a uh, Supreme Court decision produced a state response of realignment that very much affected. Uh, local governance and uh, conflict between local and state entities Um, if those citizens or prisoners uh, those that are disenfranchised can't engage in the kind of um, uh, political activity that this model of federalism or some of the models of federalism that you've suggested uh, would enable uh, what's the alternative and if should that alternative be uh, national government where should we look for the resolution of those issues
0: well, obviously a hard question to answer. What, 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 what so often those of us in the public law biz do, which is deeply unsatisfactory, as I'm sure you would agree, is bracket those questions and say those questions are about rights, and we're here to talk about structure. So let's both stipulate that that's an unsatisfactory response. I will say this, uh, that while the, the, the conversation, the analysis, whatever you want to call it, about, uh, about structure, breadth and depth of structure, didn't, didn't touch in a specific way, on powerlessness and rights, I hope it's tacit in any serious analysis about how to allocate power, whether through these isms of federalism and localism. It's a question not only about sort of the distribution of governmental authority in a fairly abstract way, but trying to measure the success of that distribution on the ability of the powerless to be empowered or to put it another way, it's really a different way to have their rights guaranteed. I I, I called uh, uh, Professor Gherkin's analysis, bold and creative, not trying to be patronizing. On the contrary, I think it's enormously valuable in its pinpointing the value of, as she puts it, federalism all the way down in empowering these dissenting groups. And the gist of her point is, even when they lose, as the same-sex couples in San Francisco 2004 lost, that still is an important dynamic that gives them some purchase on governmental institutions going forward. Where I, just to reiterate the point I made uh, about, about Professor Gherkin, what's missing in that analysis is, is what is the best structure of the relationship among these levels of government to, to increase the likelihood that the powerless won't remain powerless altogether. I'll, I'll just say this in closing. The same-sex, looking... Ten years past News, uh, Mayor Newsom 's decision, we have a fascinating uh, uh, question that can 't be resolved from where we stand right now, which is did we need the Supreme Court? Do we need the Supreme Court to decide this as this summer, almost certainly in favor of same sex marriage? Would, would it be enough to let the states play out this political system uh, uh, for the next several years so that there would be a convergence on these issues, or should we leave them to the matter of local government so that seems to me is, is, in some sense, a test case for the proposition that federalism should, should be, uh, empower states more, localism should empower local governments more. But as I ramble on, I think you ask uh, you know, the heart of the question, which is, what are the public policy impacts of these different structures of government? So let me conclude where I began, which is a deep thanks to, to Harry, to, to, uh, to, to uh, Scheiber, to uh, colleagues here, and to everyone who was responsible in, in, in inviting us back to what was, for so many happy years, Leslie and Mai's home. And we're we're very uh, delighted to be here. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.